The Astraea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two The Men of the Sea Chapter Nine In Which Cygnus Chases Elusive Adramin was still pacing back and forth when Astraea returned to the deck. He waited at the lee rail, as far away as possible from the crew, while Adramin completed one more turn, and then stopped in front of him. "'Well, what did they say?' Adramin asked impatiently. "'I made the course change, but what's the plan?' "'The plan is to get to Lindy and her stone before Mufrid does.' Astraea's unguarded answer astonished himself. Adramin's question had made him realize that he had not given his choice of destination a second thought, perhaps not even the first. Certainly he had not thought of explaining his motivation to Adramin. "'So,' said Adramin almost to himself, "'Oron's decided he doesn't want my father to get Gianfar's clasp.' "'Oron didn't decide anything, Adramin.' "'Mia, sir?' "'Listen to me, Adramin. Neither of them decided. They're both dead.' Adramin stared at Estrella, speechless. "'You killed them. You—' "'They were dead when I got there.' They had yanked each other's clasps off their arms. The shock killed them. "'Do you expect me to believe that?' Adramin began working himself up into a rage. "'I expect you to come and look for yourself. I can't open the forbidden room. I can, and you can come with me. Let's go, and try not to make it look as if we were fighting. We need to face the crew together, after you've seen what's happened.' Adramin's lips moved, but he said nothing. Estrella turned towards the companionway and paused. Adramin took the cue, and they walked side by side across the deck and went below together. At the forbidden room, Estrella opened the door and gestured for Adramin to follow. He hesitated. The last time I was here, I, I was tested. Dabby got a master's clasp. I got this. He held out his hand with its greenstone ring. That was it? He never taught you anything about navigating? Adramin shook his head. "'So we're stuck with the little that Oron showed me.' Astraea stopped talking out loud, but his thoughts continued in his mind as if he were still speaking, which isn't a lot more than I learned about geometry from Skarm, and much less than I learned about painting from Gar. Just when I'm on the edge of finding out who I am and what I should do, somebody dies. Gar, Oron, Miesa. "'Are you sure that there—' began Adramin. Estrella opened the door. Look for yourself. He pulled off the chart table's cover, and with a wave of his arm brightened the shipstones. Green light made both their faces horrifying. Adramin took a breath, like someone about to dive into deep water, and stepped resolutely into the room. Estrella pointed to the bracelet on the table, its stone a dull pebble. Miesa's. She's holding what's left of Oron's. Together they looked down in silence at the two bodies, while Estrella wondered how Adramin would react. "'Do you suppose Kaus and old Peg can come in here?' "'I don't see why not,' said Estrella, somewhat mystified by the question. "'They prepare bodies. They're working on the men and women we lost with the dirty duck. They've got to get it done before we heave to for the parting words.' "'I'll wait here for them,' said Estrella. Adramin looked as if he wanted to say something he could not express. He stood, mouth open, and looked at Estrella as if seeing him for the first time. For a moment Estrella wondered if he was actually going to salute. But then he looked down at Oran's body, shook his head, and turned towards the door. "'I'll be on deck,' he said with his back to Estrella. "'Let me out of here.' Estrella pushed the door open, and Adramin brushed past him, eager to be out of the green-lit space. Estrella stared after him, thinking back to their meeting in the tavern, wondering why Adramin was now accepting the new course without question or argument. He was still standing in the doorway, trying to reconcile the new Adramin with the one who had gone out of his way to be arrogant and condescending, when two figures came down the companionway towards him. One stooped, the other almost bent over. They each carried a roll of canvas and a leather pouch. Perhaps because he knew his face was not visible, Kaus' voice was surprisingly strong. "'Permission to enter, master?' "'I'm not the master,' said Estrella, "'but you may come in.' They entered hesitantly, whether because of the forbidden room, 
or the two dead bodies. Astrea could not tell. When they came around the table and looked at what remained of Oron and Miesa, they stood heads bowed for a moment, and then knelt to do their dismal work. They each started to fold the two masters' arms with their hands crossed on their chests. As they prepared to fix the dead hands in position with short lengths of cord, the two old crew members both paused, looked at each other's task, and then up at Astraea. Knowing that they had both seen the grooves in the two old arms where the clasps had been, Astraea picked up Mias's bracelet from the table, and then took Oron's from her hand. Looking at the dull stones in their silver settings, he had the fleeting thought he might be able to reignite them, but instead he knelt down and placed the bracelets under their owner's cold fingers. Peg looked up at him, her pale eyes catching the green light from the stone on his arm. Then she returned to the task of shrouding the bodies in canvas and stitching them into two human-shaped parcels. Astraea stood back and watched, wondering what they might be thinking. "'At your command,' said Kaus, apparently staring at Astraea's feet. "'We'll have them into the passageway and call two of the hands to hoist them on deck for the saying of the words.' Astraea nodded and waited behind them, asking himself what words he might be expected to say. Kaus disappeared up the companionway to get help, and Astraea was left looking at old Peg. She put her head slightly on one side to bring her good eye into focus, opened her mouth, and closed it again, giving a glimpse of her last two teeth. "'We know what happened,' she said, nodding her head repeatedly. Astraea waited. She cleared her throat and worked her lips in preparation for further speech. "'Miesa took Oron's bracelet.' and after he was gone, took off her own, tis plain as the look on their faces. When he went, he went surprised, like he was asking what was happening. She just laid herself down quiet, and let herself go. Astraea nodded, reassured. He had guessed that Miesa had taken her clasp off first, and when Oron tried to intervene, grabbed his, but whichever way it had happened, the result was the same. He opened his mouth to say something he hoped might be appropriate, but instead she went on speaking. "'Young master, you're the next grandmaster. I seen it when I laid eyes on you afore you was shoveling the shit for me plants, and tis plain that Miesa knew it too. Thing is, it's up to you now.' "'What is?' Astraea asked, hoping for some further revelation. "'Not for me to say. Just get me ashore again. I'd like me grave to be on land, stead of joining these two in the deep six. Before Astraea could think of a reply, the passage was crowded with men lifting the two bodies onto stretchers and carrying them up the companionway, old Peg following after them. Astraea closed the door and went back to the navigating table, where the white spear in the middle of Cygnus stone indicated the course Astraea had set. A little way away, elusive stone glowed strongly, its white shaft of light pointing in the same direction. Over to one side of the table, where Miesa had put it, was the bag with the shielded stone from Silver Swan. Remembering Oron's fear lest Miesa take her shipstone out of its container so close to Cygnus stone, he took the stick used to move the stones, pulled the bag towards him, and took out the egg-shaped container, which was decorated with the same pattern as his clasp. His fingers tingled as he put the egg on the shelf under the plotting table, where it fit into a groove apparently designed for the purpose. Then he nudged Elusive's echo stone back and forth until it shone strongest. Mufrid's ship was ahead, but still not far away. Then he looked along Cygnus' stone to check that he had set the course accurately towards the harbour at Charton. Grimly, he saw not only that his aim was true, but that it was exactly the same as Mufri's course. In his imagination, he stared across the sea to where he had last seen Lindy on the dock near Walt's Inn. If only he could see her stone. Was she there, or had she decided to return to her home? His uncertainty deepened as he considered the quest on which he had set Cygnus. The wish triggered a memory of Miesa saying that his father's stone had become visible when Alanna had given it to him to wear. How had she known? 
He looked around the green-lit room, but he could see nothing except for the shipstones. Too much light, he murmured. He pulled the cloth cover from its place under the table and draped it over the two saucers of green light, tucking the fabric around them until they glowed only faintly. With the room almost completely dark, Astraea stared at the navigation table. He rubbed his eyes and looked again. As he did so, something gleamed on a shoulder-high shelf on his right. "'The echo-stones for the clasps,' he said, wondering why he had not thought of using them earlier, and took an eager step towards them in the dark, banging his hip on the table. On the shelf was a cluster of stones, at least four the size of a small bird's egg, and three smaller. Some glowed brightly, others were dim pools of green. He extended a cautious finger towards the brightest, then drew it back, and concentrated on making his stone pulse, as he had done alone in his cabin on the first night aboard. Without having to look, he felt the stone on his arm dim, and with it an echo-stone in front of him. With a dizzying effort he returned the light to both stones, and saw that within its soft glow two of the larger stones were dull pebbles. Oron and Myrsa. The sound of his own words convinced him that he was right. Then the small stones must be those of Adramin and Mirak. That meant that the brighter of the large stones had to belong to Mufrid and Dabby, which left— Lindy! exclaimed Astrea, and caught his breath as an unexpected stab of yearning went through him. He reached for the stone, and then remembering how careful Oron had been not to touch them, felt around in the dark for something to insulate his fingers. His hand fell on a loose piece of soft fabric, which he used to pick up Lindy's echo-stone without letting his fingers touch its green glow. Then he placed it carefully on the mapped shoreline, at the point where he had aimed Cygnus' shipstone. When he took his hand away, the echo-stone glowed brighter than ever. "'Yes!' he exclaimed, immediately wanting the connection to be stronger. In the same moment as he celebrated, he wondered whether what he had just done could have also taken place aboard Elusive. He doubted that there was more than one echo-stone for each class, but he knew that anything he did with Cygnus Stone would be visible to Dabby, or even Mufrid, now his clasp was functioning, if they happened to be in Elusive's forbidden room at the time. Astraea imagined Mufrid on his ship, scheming to be the first to find Lindy. Was he working the stones himself, now that he had stolen power from Astraea to relight his own? Or was he directing Dabby? And how strong was the father-son bond in that family? Strong enough, Astraea thought gloomily, that Mufrid's two sons would obey their father, particularly if both Lindy's and Astraea's stones were the spoils of war. A knock at the door interrupted his speculations. He recovered the table carefully and opened the door. Cam was alone in the passage, his fist raised to knock again. "'Dramin sent me to get you,' said Cam, looking up at Estrella. "'Leastways, that's what he wants. He gave me a whole lot of words to say, something like, "'Ready at your command.' "'Sure seems like he's thinking you're in charge.' Estrella felt strengthened by Cam's informal account, but was dubious about being accepted by Adramin. "'Adramin picked you to tell me?' "'Sort of.' I reckoned I should tell somebody I got left behind by Elusive. Dramin was handy, so I told him, and he sent me. I'm really glad you're here, Cam. Good to see you too, Strayer. Especially now you're near on being skipper of this great ship. He turned his face upwards in the grin Astraea remembered from the village. Not likely, Cam. I'm still the lubber Adramin snatched off the shore. That's not what I'm hearing. The word is out below decks. One of the two old folks who was here to do the stiffs up are both saying that you're the one they've all been waiting for, the new Grand Master. How's that grab you? Astraea stared at him. Like sitting bare-arsed on a pile of fishhooks, Cam, said Astraea, copying one of Roaring Jack's colourful phrases. <laughs> so how's about a position for me that's fitting me undoubted skills and amazing abilities? Cam, you should ask yourself if you really want to be standing too close to me, because I really don't know when they might decide to sling me overside. I'll take me chances, Strayer, cause you're a lucky man. Now, let's get up on deck afore Dramin gets his britches in a bunch. I'm right behind you. As they started up the companionway, the ship reverberated to the drumming of many feet. Astraea heard Cam's voice behind him. What are they up to now? 
general call to muster on deck, said Estrella. When they were on deck, Cam seemed to vanish. Estrella stood beside Adraman, who was leading the steadily pounding heels. In front of them were eight canvas-wrapped shapes, arranged in a line. Two more lay side by side and separate, closer to where Estrella and Adraman faced the crew across the sombre array. The drumming of heels ceased as the last few crew members came up on deck. "'Even if it's a bit early in the day, we'll heave to for the words,' said Adramin. Estrella nodded, wondering what was about to happen. Adramin raised one hand, the steersman swung the wheel, three sailors hauled the leading jib to windward, and Cygnus no longer heeled to port on a broad reach northeastward. Instead of slicing across the waves, she rose and fell passively, her masts pointing almost straight up as she lay head to wind. Save for the uneven sound of sails flapping, there was something close to silence. "'We commit,' said Adramin, and the crews picked up his words in a steady chant of many voices, all of them repeating words they knew as well as their own names. "'We commit our shipmates to the sea on which they lived and died. As they followed the law, even to their last breath, may we who still live preserve the ship, obey the masters, keep faith with those who serve throughout the fleet, and shun land until the time foretold, lest corruption be renewed and honour lost. As they spoke, clouds softened the sunlight, blurring shadows. After a pause, Adramin consulted a list he had concealed in the palm of his hand, and spoke. Rana, Seaborn, of Silver Swan. Two women edged out of the crowd, and stood one on each side of the first body. First one and then the other muttered words that Estrella could not hear. Then they bent over and grasped loops of rope that he had not noticed until that moment. They lifted together, and the canvas shape rose to hip height, flat, on an unseen board under the body's back. They carried their burden to the ship's side, poised one end of the board on the rail, heaved, and what remained of the woman named Rana slid out and down, splashed into the sea, and was gone. Taking the board with them, the two rejoined the crew. Adramin consulted his list. Alrisha, Seaborn, previously of Cygnus, recently of Silver Swan, the same sad scene was repeated with fresh participants. This time one of the mourners was Betel. His voice came to Estrella as a soft murmur, in which he heard a few individual words. Strong. Shipmate. Friend. A second body splashed into the water. Adramin read another name. Two more people stepped forward. Slowly the line of wrapped bodies grew shorter. As the ritual repeated, Estrella looked at the men and women who came forward, as he had done when he had sketched students and learneds for Gar's murals at the castle. He saw grief in the downward tilt of heads and shoulders, loss and a stoic acceptance on weathered faces of men and women who had shared danger and accepted its consequences. What he saw and heard blended with his memory of funerals at the village, and he found himself becoming a part of the sorrow that was around him. At last only two canvas-wrapped shapes were left, the bodies of Oron and Miesa. Adramin had no need to consult his list. "'Silver Swan,' he said more gently than his previous announcements. He walked around the first shape until he stood with his back to the crew, looking over Miesa's body at Estrella. Hoping he was doing what was expected of him, Estrella stepped forward to face Adramin across her body. She cared for me when I was little, as if I was important to her. Adamin's voice was so soft it was almost inaudible. Then he turned to face the crews of both ships and raised his voice. Seaborn and Landborn, twenty heels for Meissa, Seaborn, daughter of Zubin, mistress of Silver Swan. The drumming began at once and continued as Adramin turned back to face Astraea. Together they stooped and took hold of the pairs of looped ropes. Adramin nodded, and they lifted. As they carried the body to the ship's side and poised it on the rail, Astraea stared at the weather-stained canvas of the shroud, 
seeing in his mind's eye the face that he had known for so short a time. Adramin nodded again, and at the last stroke of many bare heels they tipped the board. At first Estrella was afraid the body had somehow stuck, and he wondered how it would seem to the crew if one of them had to shove the corpse into the sea. Then the board bucked in their hands as Meus's body splashed down away from the ship. The canvas ballooned for an instant and then disappeared into the side of a wave. They laid the board down and went back to take up the same positions on either side of the body that had been Oron. Adramin bent his head even lower than before. Astrea copied his respectful posture. Without turning around, Adramin spoke to the crew. Landborn and seaborn, twenty heels for Oron, landborn, son of Zubin, master of Cygnus, grand master of the fleet. Their burden was astonishingly light, as if the old man's many years had diminished him to a mere husk. They made their way to the rail, balanced the board, and waited for the last booming heel-stroke. "'He's dead at last,' said Adramin softly. Then, as they lifted and the body slid into the sea, Adramin muttered, "'Now we are free.' Astrea was amazed. He had been wondering whether to offer some words of commiseration on the death of the man who had been Adramin's master and grandfather. Instead, he stood beside his cousin, looking at the coil of bubbles where the body had sunk. He blurted out the simplest version of all the questions to which he needed answers. "'What now, Adramin?' "'Your problem. You wear the clasp. You work the stones. You talk to the crew.' He strolled toward the forward part of the wheelhouse and leaned against it, staring at Estrella with an inscrutable expression on his lean face that was neither friendly nor his usual wry half-smile. A sudden movement behind the wheelhouse caught Estrella's eye, out of sight of both Adramin and the crew. It was Cam. He shook his hair out of his eyes, pointed both his index fingers at Astrea, and grinned. Astrea hesitated only for a heartbeat. He strode deliberately to the centre of the half-circle formed by the crews of the two ships, stopped, and looked into the faces of the men and women in front of him. He saw curiosity and expectancy in the eyes of some, but most looked resigned to do, without question, whatever order came next. "'Land-born and sea-born,' Astrea began. Faces came up to meet his gaze. Those not in the front shuffled forward or leaned to see between those ahead of them. He saw a few hands cupping their ears, and he deliberately strengthened his voice. "'Today I said words of parting over the bodies of my grandfather and great-aunt. It is not long since I was ashore, and had the same task—' on behalf of my uncle Gianfar, better known to both you and me as Gar. Heads turned, glances were exchanged, and a murmur of voices rose, competing with the sounds of wind and sea. He paused until they began to fall silent, and then pressed on with his thought. About seventeen years ago, my mother stood over my father's body, saying her last farewell to the man she had known for less than a year— a few months later she gave birth. She gave me my father's name, Estrella. He paused again to let the murmuring rise and fall, gaining confidence from their attention. My mother could tell me little of Estrella's life before he was rescued by one of the fishing boats from my village. I knew from the words he had written, and the pictures he had drawn for her, and perhaps for me, that my father was a seaman, who had served in the great ships. These ships I now know by name. Cygnus, Silver Swan, Elusive. Throughout my childhood my mother wore the gift my father had given her on their wedding day, a bracelet containing a smooth green stone. This year, when I came of age, my mother passed his gift on to me. She had kept it safe on her arm in memory of my father, Estrella. When I received it from her, the stone was just that, a polished stone. But it seems my father, Estrella, also passed on to me the power to bring back light to such stones. Estrella paused, pushed back his left sleeve, and held his arm up high, so that they all could see the stone in his clasp, gleaming bright green. 
This time the reaction was more than murmurs. Exclamations, comments and questions mingled, in which Estrella heard Mirak's name mentioned several times. I never knew my father, Estrella. I met my cousin, Adramin, when he brought me to Cygnus. My uncle Gar and I shared only a couple of months on land. We barely spoke of the sea and ships, and he said nothing of why and how he had been banished ashore. But before he died, he gave my companion his clasp, in which the stone was dull and lifeless, and bade me light it. I did that before Adramin brought me aboard Cygnus. Master Oron recognized me when he saw the clasp, which was once my father's. However, he was distressed by what he saw. By all he believed it was not possible for me to wear a stone that had died with my father, then passed through my mother to me to be lit afresh, and yet he could not deny that this was so. Nonetheless, he acknowledged me as his grandson. He paused again. There was a questioning tone to the murmuring. My great-aunt Miasa and I shared only a few moments before she died. She immediately grasped the meaning that Oron did not want to face. He paused, and when he spoke again he ceased to be a storyteller, and instead voiced a proclamation. The land is safe, safe for you, the men and women of the great ships, and safe from you as well. You can live ashore, as Estrella did, as Gar did, and as I have done. You don't have to, but you can. If you wish it, your wandering can end. For several painful heartbeats, the only sounds were made by wind and water interacting with Cygnus. Then there was a hubbub of voices, exclaiming, questioning, and exchanging opinions. Astrea tried to interpret their mood, hoping that they had been convinced by his candour. "'So, this is where they sling us in the salt chuck,' said Cam, cheerfully at his elbow. "'Could be,' Astrea murmured. Peg's grey-haired figure pushed her way into the half-circle and waved her hands for silence. Her old voice squeaked as she tried to make herself heard. "'He's the Grand Master what's foretold as being the one to end the wandering. Now I can be going ashore and having me a dry grave!' The old woman's voice cracked, and she staggered. Two people stepped forward to steady her back into the crowd. "'A revelation,' said Adramin. "'Now we can say what we knew for many years.' but didn't dare say, for fear of the master's command. Adramin's disparaging tone annoyed Estrella, but the number of nodding heads indicated that his cousin had consolidated opinion in favour of what Estrella was proposing. When their voices were silent, Adramin spoke. "'So, cousin, what should we do? Where? And when?' His voice dripped both affront and disgust that such a decision was being discussed in front of the crew. Peg Landborn wants to go ashore, said Estrella, but I'm sure she doesn't mean just anywhere. I just want some place that's warm, shrilled the old voice. A murmur compounded of amusement and approval rose, and as it died away, Estrella spoke. Some of us may not want to leave the sea. Most of us will want to take our ease ashore from time to time, and not everyone will want the same place. We need plans, destinations, maps, charts, and courses to steer. I can point Cygnus back the way we came, but I have only a few weeks of training in the navigation arts. My cousin, Dabby, young as he is, knows much more than I do, and Mufred has commanded Elusive for years. Making a generous call for stores and provisions and such in Portsacol to the south, said Mirak, his voice so unexpressive it was almost sarcasm. Estrella saw faces exchanging looks, and several men guffawed. At this moment, Estrella continued, Mufrid is a few hours ahead of us to the northwest. I'm sure he's looking for the last navigation stone, Gar's stone, the stone he gave to, to my companion. We need Mufrid's help and Dabby's skills if we are to find our way to where you want to go. But our parting was not friendly. Frankly, I don't know what Mufrid plans to do, but I fear for the safety of my friend who wears Gar's stone. If Mufrid gets it before us, we can only beg for help. If we get it first, then maybe we can bargain for an arrangement that benefits us all. Silence. 
For a moment he wavered, thinking how thin his hope must sound. He looked at the faces in front of him, trying to gauge the effect of his frankness, which he knew was diametrically opposed to Oron's style of command. He looked down at the deck, saw a pair of small feet beside him, and heard Cam's voice. "'That Mufrid kills people to get hold of navigation stones,' said Cam. "'He near killed Strayer.' "'Sorry, Dramin, I know he's your dad, but he's also really scary.' Estrella looked up and saw some heads nodding. Others turned towards Adramin. "'If I were you, I would be very, very cautious about accusing my father of anything,' said Adramin. "'When I was your size, my father gave me good reason to fear and obey.' Estrella looked at the crew and saw amusement at Cam's expense in several faces. "'Talk with him we must,' said Estrella as firmly as he could, "'and it will be better if we talk while holding the last stone.' A murmur that Estrella hoped was agreement rose from the crew. "'So, land-born or sea-born, you have the right to choose when and where to live, be it afloat or ashore. But to make that choice we must be the first to the stone, and at every moment we are a little further behind elusive.' "'Can Cygnus win this race?' "'Cygnus can sail the sticks out of the leaky stiv!' shouted Mirak. Astrea turned to Adramin and raised his eyebrows. "'You set the course, cousin. Cygnus'll do the rest.' "'So, sailing master Adramin,' said Astrea with as much confidence as he could put into his voice, "'would you be so kind as to bring us back on course and up to our best speed?' To his amazement, Adramin's left arm swung up, his green ring glinted, and in front of all of the crew he gave Estrella the full fist-on-throat salute. "'At your command!' he said, curling his lips into a twisted smile. He raised his voice into a shout. "'Make sail! All the canvas she'll carry! Belay the daily routines! Double the watches! There's wind coming! Evening meal in relays! Haul that jib and get us out of irons now!' "'Steersman Yed, bring her on course as she fills!' Adramin strode around the deck, barking orders, reinforcing the crew's best efforts. At first footfalls thumped and sails flapped as the ship came back onto course. Then halyards squeaked through blocks as more sails climbed the mast and stays. The sails quieted as they were sheeted in. Then the ship again made familiar sounds compounded from the rush of wind and water. Astrea looked up at curve on curve of canvas, catching the afternoon light like the wings of a huge sea-bird as Cygnus reached westward under a press of sails. "'I'll take the first watch,' said Adramin as he completed one of his circuits. "'Then it'll be watch and watch every six hours. You keep us on course with the stones.' Astrea nodded to the lean, black-clad figure, and Adramin began to pace around the ship, forward along the lee-side, aft on the weather, continually glancing upwards to check the set of every sail. Astrea lingered on the stern deck, enjoying the play of light and shadow as the ship drove towards the sun, which was lowering towards puffy clouds, white on their rounded tops, a line of dark below. As he watched, the sun dipped behind the tallest clouds, and light shifted from clear to a pinkish glow that warmed Cygnus' curving sails. "'With respect, master, it's your watch below,' said Mirak's voice at his elbow. "'Dramin and Bettel have the ship. Our trick starts at midnight. You'd better get some rest. It's not been an easy day.' Astrea nodded, grateful for Mirak's concern. He went below to find Kaus at the foot of the companionway, gesturing towards the master's cabin, where food awaited on the same table that Oron had used to teach the navigation arts. Astrea sat cautiously, almost as if Oron might enter the cabin and catch him in his chair. Then the food and drink made him aware how hungry and tired he was. He finished his lonely meal, visualizing each of the people who had met there only hours before. Oron, sitting erect, his cloak masking just how thin he had become. Miasa slumped over the table, her grey hair concealing her face. Dabby, a forefinger almost touching his lips. Mufrid, black hair sleeked back and tied at the nape of his neck, his dark eyes slit. Adramin near his father's elbow, but leaning away from him. As he recalled the scene, Astrea saw what he had missed at the time. Mufrid 
had been expecting an entirely different course of events. He had been as surprised as Estrella by Miesa's flat statements about the futility of Oron's plans. Had he been shocked that she wanted the wandering to end? Or was it because this would affect his own plotting and planning? Adramin and Dabby must have guessed that their father had some kind of secret scheme. Adramin had been excited and apprehensive, Dabby fearful. Estrella sat absolutely still and stared sightlessly in front of him, straining to remember if there was anything that he had seen but not understood at the time. "'Shall you rest now, master? I've made the stern bunk fresh for you.' The words came to Estrella as if from a great distance, and it was several heartbeats before he could answer Kaus' question. "'Thank you, Kaus, but I'll sleep in my own cabin.' he said, getting to his feet. "'Please wake me well before the midnight watch,' he added, as he left the master's cabin and headed down the passageway. He stumbled into his own darkened cabin, fell onto his bunk, and was asleep almost before his head hit the pillow. Estrella was dreaming, and he knew it. He was once again on the molly, bailing storm water out of the bilge, scoop, scrape, throw. Huge waves rushed past over his head, and the boat shuddered whenever her bow punched into a wave. Estrella was just beginning to wonder why he was neither wet nor cold when he heard a burst of knocking. He dismissed it as the loose end of a jib-sheet against the wet deck, but the sound redoubled, chasing away the rest of his dream as he became aware that someone was pounding on his cabin door. He rolled out of his bunk, half stood, jerked the door open, almost fell into Mirak, who was holding onto a grab-rail with one hand. The ship was heeling over further than Astrea had ever experienced, and he had to clutch at the door-frame. He rubbed sleep out of his eyes with his free hand. "'Good. You're dressed. Come quick. You're needed on deck, Master Astrea. Here's a cloak.' Astrea took a step forward into the passage, and Mirak enfolded him in heavy material that hung down to his feet. Clutching at the grab-rail, Astrea made his way along the passage, Mirak close behind him. "'Dramin's going to sail the sticks out of her!' said Mirak over Estrella's shoulder. The wind's piped up and backed around so as we're close-hauled, with more sail than we should carry in this weather, and Dramin's behaving like he doesn't know or care. Did you speak to him? asked Estrella as they climbed the companionway. Tried to. So did Bettel. But Dramin brushed us off like he'd never heard a word. At the top step they both paused under a dim lantern swinging wildly from the coachwork, both of them unable to talk for the keening, tearing sound of wind over ropes and canvas, and the continuous slash of waves. The wind across the deck plastered the cloak against Estrella's left side, filled like a sail below his shoulders, and flapped on his right, tugging him towards the lee rail. He staggered and would have fallen if Mirak had not guided his arm to a safety rope that led from companionway to the wheelhouse. Hand over hand he pulled himself along the wet deck, feeling the rope pulse as Mirak did the same behind him. Before they had gone in what calmer weather would have been only a few short steps, spray was running across his face and weighing down the cloak so that it flapped increasingly heavily. He had to struggle to open the wheelhouse door. Inside a faint green light glowed on the lined face of Yed, the old steersman, who was struggling with the wheel. Mirak pushed past Estrella and grabbed the other side of the shoulder-high wheel, lending his strength to the task of keeping Cygnus on course. "'Permission to reduce sail, master?' Adramin's voice came from behind Estrella's shoulder, where he had been standing unseen in the dark. "'Right,' said Estrella. "'Do it. I mean, make it so.' "'At your command.' The clipped reply was followed by a gust of wind through the open door that wrapped the cloak around Estrella's body like the embrace of huge, encircling arms. He clawed the collar away from his face and looked behind him, but Adramin was gone into the night, shouting orders that the wind whipped from his mouth. Estrella peered along the lee of the wheelhouse. Lanterns bobbed and swung, casting yellow light onto spray-wet decks, gleaming masts, and the bottom of sails that disappeared upwards into total darkness. He wondered how anyone could get to the sheets and halyards, let alone reduce sail. Then, in glimpses, he dimly saw sailors preparing for what they had to do. Tight-knit groups of men crossed the deck. They clung to safety lines, moving so close together that Estrella could not see how many were in each working party, as they made their spray-soaked way from companionways to belays at the mast for the sheets and halyards. 
Shouts competed with the crashing and howling of waves and wind. Mirak's hand clutched his shoulder as he put his head out of the doorway. The next moment he heard Adramin's voice, but Estrella did not understand the order until Mirak repeated it to the steersman. Right, Yed, let's get her head to wind. Then the grizzled old sailor and Mirak struggled to bring Cygnus into the wind to reduce the wind's huge force on the sails while the sailors struck or reefed them. For a few moments it did not seem that the ship would obey. Then she gradually responded to her rudder. The entire ship bucked, shuddered, and trembled as her crew frantically clawed at sails, straining to smother the flapping canvas. Wildly swinging lantern light glanced onto knots of struggling men who muscled the flapping canvas into submission and wrestled the heavy grey bundles down the companionways. In what little light gleamed on the wet deck, Astraea saw one of the jibs suddenly burst into flapping rags. Most of the sail vanished into the storm, but a trailing rope caught one of the sailors around the legs, yanking him into the scuppers, where successive waves pummeled him. He managed to kick himself free of the tangled sail, but could not climb back up the steeply slanting deck until three of his crewmates linked hands to make a human chain that pulled him to the relative safety of the lifelines. Mirak was near Estrella's shoulder again, half outside the door, listening for the next command. Once more, Estrella didn't hear the actual words, but he knew what Mirak and Yed had been ordered to do. The two men cranked the wheel together, straining against the resistance of the rudder below them. "'She's not,' began Mirak. "'Yes, she is. Give her time,' said Yed. "'Hope she holds, or it's knockdown time.' "'Bear up gently. The tackle's a long way from you.' Astrea wondered whether to offer help, but before he could move the wheel started to turn of its own accord, and the two men were trying to check its twirling without breaking their hands on the blur of fast-moving spokes. The ship shuddered as sail after sail took the wind's load, heeling her over onto her lee side. "'She's full,' muttered Yed. "'She is that. Now let's get her on course, so they can trim.' Astrea was ashamed to be standing still while the crew risked their lives to bring the ship under control. Now that the crisis was over, he told himself that they knew their jobs, and he did not. He would only have been in the way, or even plucked into the sea by the flapping cloak that kept him clinging to whatever he could hold. "'Well, that was a wee bit disturbing,' said Mirak, turning towards Astraea, now that Yed could manage by himself. "'Why didn't Adramin ease her earlier?' asked Astraea. "'Well, it came up gradual-like,' said Yed. First a little bit, and then a bigger bit, and then—' "'But why didn't he—' "'Because he was waiting to be told,' said Mirak. "'But he was in charge, same as usual. If Oron had been alive, he'd have acted earlier, wouldn't he?' Mirak nodded. His eyes gleamed in the dim light, but they did not meet Astraea's. He must have asked himself what Oron would have him do. And then, because the old man wasn't there, something came apart in his head, and he froze. That's why you put me into Oron's cloak, wasn't it? Mirak nodded again. This time his teeth gleamed. Yed and me thought it might work, and it did. Soon as he saw the cloak, he saw the master, and he knew what to do. He did a great job. "'But a late job,' said Astraea, immediately aware that he shouldn't be criticising Adramin in front of the crew. "'You're beginning to see what's up, aren't you?' said Mirak. Yed coughed deliberately, and Mirak turned toward the old steersman, as if grateful for the interruption. He was whispering in Yed's ear when Adramin suddenly appeared and stood, dripping rain and spray. "'She'll hold,' he said breathlessly. "'Then it's your watch below, Adramin.' said Estrella. Adramin rattled off a report, his voice clipped and emotionless. "'We're down to one storm-jib. Fore and mizzen-sails reefed, the main double. All parts are under an equal strain. Fresh hands are coming on deck. The lights are as bright as they can be, given the spray and rain, and there's nothing in sight, assuming we could see it, which we can't.' Estrella nodded, which caused his cloak to slip from his shoulders. He thought he heard his cousin mutter something to Mirak that could have been, "'Make sure they know,' before turning on his heel and going back out into the night. "'If I may suggest,' began Mirak, "'of course. After a to-do like we just had, the master would always go below and, uh, uh, I suppose, check our heading.' 
Astrea thanked him and struggled back down to the forbidden room. Though the wind and weather were as before, the ship rode more easily, and he only needed one hand to steady himself on the safety ropes where earlier he had hauled himself hand over hand. When he had palmed open the room's metallic door, he pulled the fabric from the table. The stones had remained where he had put them, each in its own little hollow. Cygnus' stone was still as strong as ever, but Elusive's echo-stone was barely glowing. The same was true of Lindy's. As he watched, the stones seemed to pulse, to grow weaker and stronger, now almost their usual power, now nearly dark. For a few moments Astrea wondered whether Elusive was lost, but then he remembered the profound shock that had struck him when Spindrift's stones had died, and he knew that nothing so drastic had happened. He heard spray and rain lash the deck above his head, then pause, then strike again. In front of him the stones pulsed roughly in time to the sound. Guessing that the weather must have something to do with the changes, he took the hooked stick and moved elusive stone back and forth, but where before it had been easy to find a point at which the stone shone strongest, now the results of his adjustments were far less obvious, and he had only a vague sense of where the other ship was. Reasoning that Lindy, on land, would not have moved appreciably, he lined up the spear of light in Cygnus stone on the dim light of her echo-stone. He had to make only a minor adjustment, possibly the result of the time when they were drifting leeward while the crew shortened sail. Astrea covered the table and left the forbidden room. As he made his way along the darkened, swaying passage, he almost ran into someone seated on the bottom step of the companionway. Cows? Not likely. It's me, Cam. That cows fellow is a caution. I thought he'd never go to sleep. Here you are, Strayer. Have some of the stuff that passes for tea afore you go back on deck and get into some fresh foolishness. Cam pressed a warm mug into his hand, and he drank gratefully. Whatever was in it tasted better than usual. What is it, Cam? Dunno. The old lady put something in. She didn't even twitch when I took a sip to see if it was nasty, so I decided it wouldn't kill you. Thanks, Cam, said Estrella. Then, feeling his words to be completely inadequate, he reached out a hand to Cam's shoulder. "'I'm really glad you're aboard, Cam.' "'You know, Estrella, so am I.' Estrella finished the drink gratefully. Pleasant warmth started in his stomach and ran through him, reviving as it went. Cam took back the mug and went forward along the passageway as Estrella climbed back on deck into the wind and rain. Later he came back down to check the stones once more. He could see that Elusive was somewhere to starboard in the wind and rain, but since both ships were tacking long and short, it was impossible to know whether Cygnus had narrowed the gap between them. He imagined that aboard Elusive, Dabby was having the same problem. But what was Mufrid thinking? Was he trying his hand at working the stones? And was Dabby working willingly, or because he was cowed by his murderous father? What would Lindy say if she knew about his relatives? He looked at her echo-stone with a longing so strong that he wondered if she could feel it, and as he thought of her he spoke out loud. Not one of the family has ever mentioned anyone's wife or mother, except me, sir, to say that Oron's wives had died in childbirth, and me, when I spoke of my mother. I thought Oron and Adramin were upset about a woman wearing the bracelet, but it's more than that. There's a great big hole in every one of the men where a mother or a wife should be. But I'm different because of Alanna. I have to be. And I'm even more different because of Lindy, if she'll still have me after all that has happened to me. He stood looking at her echo-stone for a time that he did not notice as it passed, until it struck him that he should be back on deck. He covered the table and went back up. When he had crossed from the companionway to the wheelhouse, he stood wrapping Oron's cloak more tightly around him, preparing for the duties of his watch. He thought about the other sailors who lacked the protection of the wheelhouse, and asked himself what they thought of the dubious plan he had chosen for them. After a few moments of something like dismay, it occurred to him that Mirak was probably waiting for him to check the ship's state, so he took a fresh grip on his cloak with one hand and went back out into the rain and spray. Mirak appeared beside him as if by magic, and together they began the first circuit of the watch. They slipped and swayed along safety lines to where the men of the watch huddled in what shelter they could find in the lee of the cabin tops and masts. 
Estrella strove to find something to say to each of them, but the wind, rain, and spray drowned out anything but a few words. Most of the exchanges were limited to Estrella shouting, "'You all right?' and receiving an incredulous stare, followed by words blown away into the storm. At the end of one round of the deck, Estrella strove to keep awake and alert by asking questions. "'Mirak, Cygnus hasn't been at sea continuously for almost a century. Things wear out and have to be replaced. You can't tell me she's not been careened and scraped in all that time.' "'No fooling you, is there? You're right, of course. We clean her bottom once a year, cut spars, fill up on water that hasn't been run through the system a few times. The master takes us to a bay or an estuary where nobody lives.' We do the work and leave. Then we trade fish and whale oil at the City of the Sea for other stuff. Metal? Mirak nodded. We get it from the sieve, and they get it, well, they get it somewhere south. They don't tell us where, probably cause only Mufrid knows. Estrella drew breath to ask more questions, but Mirak turned away, muttering about needing to check the storm jib. The rest of the night passed with only the formal exchanges necessary to their regular rounds of the deck. Near dawn the rain ceased and the wind eased. As the sky lightened, turning the low clouds from grey to white, the sea was still heaving in long swells, but breaking waves no longer surged past, tossing spindrift across the deck as they had done during the night. Estrella had spent much of the night hours in circuits of the deck and visits to the forbidden room to check direction. Throughout the whole time he wondered whether he had overstepped himself and his limited abilities by deciding where Cygnus should go. In the forbidden room he wished for some connection to Lindy, so that he could warn her that Mufrid was trying to get to her ahead of him. The thought urged him on, even though he had no clear idea of how he would find her, or what he would do if and when he met with Mufrid and Elusive. Cold and tired from his rounds of the ship with Mirak, Estrella pulled his cloak tighter around his body. In the growing light he saw Yed shiver, and he tried once more to connect with the members of the crew. "'A difficult night, Yed,' said Estrella. "'Twas that, come up, master. Just, Estrella, Yed, the cloak is borrowed.' "'Very good, sir. I mean, Estrella, sir.' "'You're going to like this,' said a cheerful voice. Estrella turned to see Cam, mugs in one hand and a steaming kettle in the other. "'What have you got there, Cam?' "'Hot something. Don't ask what. The important thing, it's hot. Oh, hello, Mirak.' Mirak gave Cam a quick look, perhaps irritated by his familiarity, and reported briefly on the status of the ship and crew below decks. Then they all cupped their cold hands around their mugs and sipped something that might have started out as very sweet tea. Soon the hot drink and the steadily increasing light of day penetrated the cold and gloomy private worlds that are the fate of all night-watch keepers. "'She'll handle a bit more sail soon,' said Mirak. "'The wind's steadying in the north, and it's showing signs of clearing.' Cautiously, Estrella allowed himself to hope. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.